Take your Bibles and let's look to Luke chapter 17, the Gospel of Luke. It's very, very important because we, uh, we left our study in part one of this last section of Luke 17, and we want to come back to this and uh, continue in what is for us a riveting discussion on the part of the Lord to try to deal with some confusion that had been going on about what people were looking for in a rescuer, a savior, a messiah. And of course, the danger here is, is the ultimate danger. Everything's at stake when you're dealing with the soul. Over and over again in Jesus' ministry, he would say things like, take care of your soul. Don't be offended at me and lose your soul. Don't amass wealth here on the earth and lose your soul. Don't try to protect your life here and forfeit eternity. He would say these kinds of things over and over. And we just read 2 Peter 3 where Peter says, I've said these things to you beforehand so that you'll know. Jesus did that a lot too. I spoke these things to you beforehand. I want you to know. Because God does know that eternity is at stake. And therefore everything is at stake. And you find Jesus doing this, whether he's talking to the leaders of Israel or the crowd around him or the most ranked pagan in society or the religious hypocrite at the highest levels. He is always bringing a message to warn them of that very thing. You are toying around with your eternity. And so in this section, you remember last time he was facing off once again with the leaders of Israel in verses 20 and 21 of Luke 17, because he had been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And as I said to you, this is not a calendar question. They're not saying, what's the date? And we'll see in a little bit when Jesus talks to the disciples how silly that is to think about. Nor is this some sort of cynical question necessarily, hey, can you prove it? Although they were cynical about Jesus and they demanded signs and proof quite often. But what they are saying here is indicated by Jesus' answer. You notice in verse 20, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So we know from that, and we learned last time, that the Pharisees are asking Jesus to give them the lead-up, the, the recognizable sort of circumstances on the earth, the political and cultural markers, if you will, that would be the signs that the promised kingdom is arriving and about to rule. It's almost as though they want to anticipate it so they can see their place in it in all of its splendor. They will be looking for the signs of the kingdom that put themselves at the center of its glory and splendor, and they have no interest in a savior of some other kind. None at all. They, they like their life on earth. They're happy with it the way it is. They are a powerful organization, a sort of mafia, if you will, of religion. They have money. They have influence. They do whatever they want. They sometimes pronounce judgments against the local kings and puppet prelates. They are in power. They like it. They like the earth. They like their life. And they use it to their advantage. And they are, as Jesus says, hypocrites, mask wearers. They love it. They have no interest in a savior that says, abandon all that for eternity. They have no interest in a savior that says, admit to me that you are a condemned sinner and deserving of nothing and your, your eternity is not secure 
and then come to me. That is not a Savior they want. Now, it is also true that Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, it's not coming with observable signs. And then when he's talking to the disciples not too long after that interlude, interaction with the Pharisees, he does say there will be visible things to see when Jesus comes in his glory. The very next conversation, when he's talking with the disciples about his full kingdom glory when it arrives, he says it's going to be observable and powerful and shocking. In fact, Jesus warns in chapter 21, verse 31, not to miss the signs if you happen to be on the earth when he arrives. But here he first confronts the Pharisees because they believed that all the promised blessings of the Old Testament given about the Messiah belonged to them and they did not have a need for Jesus. They did not want the kind of Savior being offered. They did not want a Messiah like Jesus says the Messiah would come, a Messiah who dies for the sins of his people. They did not believe they were sinners. A Messiah who brings his righteousness, which is a superior righteousness. They did not believe that their righteousness was inferior. And so Jesus is essentially telling them, look, I'm right in front of you. Notice that's what he says here. The kingdom doesn't come with signs to be observed, nor are they going to say, look, here it is or there it is, as if somebody actually was the first one to see it and know it above everyone else. No, the kingdom of God is right in front of you. It's in your midst. How so? The king of that kingdom is the one you must respond to and look to. And I'm standing right in front of you. In other words, he's saying your question about the signs of the kingdom betrays your true motive. You want to see a kingdom arrive with your own righteousness at its center. And so I don't fit into that plan because I call you to repent and believe. You are missing the fact that Jesus, Jesus is saying to them, you're missing the fact that I am the king of this coming kingdom. I'm the power. I'm right in your midst. If you reject me and my call to repentance, you're going to miss the greatest sign of the kingdom thus far. I am the sign. And their Messiah would arrive and exalt them for their own righteousness. They wanted a Savior who would save them from Roman oppression, not a Savior who would redeem them from their sin. And so we saw last time the kind of Jesus that a person wants puts their eternity at stake. If you don't come to Jesus on his terms, you lose eternity. You may gain everything here. You may be at the power center of earthly life. You may have it all, as Jesus said, gain the whole world, own it all, rule it all. Even as Satan himself is the ruler of this world, and yet his eternity is lost in punishment and torment. What are Jesus' terms? You admit you're a condemned sinner and you don't belong in the kingdom. That's where it begins. Pharisees weren't willing to do that. We saw that last time. And Jesus' terms also are a complete turning from the love of sin and unrighteousness. The Pharisees loved their hypocrisy. They didn't want to turn from their love of the world to forgiveness of sin because they didn't want to believe that what they did behind the scenes was sinful. And his terms aren't just those two things. It is also entrusting your life in eternity to Christ. 
Why? Because you believe his sacrifice alone pays for your sin and nothing you bring will. And then it's a totally offering, a total offering of yourself to him as your Lord and Master. You follow his commands. You love him. That's your desire. That's your heart. You won't do it perfectly, but by the power of his spirit once saved, you can actually start being conformed to the image of Christ. And your heart is transformed and you have new inclinations and love for him. The Pharisees had no interest in that kind of a Jesus. And so we saw last time how devastating that would be. Well, now in this next section, the Pharisees have taken off. They've, they've headed out, no doubt, to complete some more plotting to get Jesus dead. And in verses 22 to 37, Jesus then warns his disciples. He is speaking to his disciples, and of course within earshot are others who might have amassed in the crowd. But here, personally, his disciples are mentioned. That is to say, the Pharisees are gone, the disciples that spend their time with Jesus are mentioned here. And he warns them, and whoever else is within earshot who seeks to follow him, do not set your hearts on, their, on this earthly life and its possessions as though those things are worth saving. As though those things are worth saving. Why is that? Because when the king appears in judgment of the entire world, only fools will live for what they have here in this life. Only fools. Only fools would consider anything here worthy of saving. Souls are the only thing that matter. Sometimes people will imagine somehow, strangely, that they can take things from this life into the next life beyond their soul. You won't. You will take nothing. Everything will burn up. Everything in this life is temporary. Everything in this life is corrupted. Even the earth was subjected to futility, waiting for our redemption so that the curse could be reversed, says Romans 8. And we grab a hold of things here as if they mean something permanent. They're nice to have, perhaps even ways we can use resources here in the common grace of God to serve the gospel and to see souls come to Christ. But in the end, only souls live forever. Everything else is going to die and burn up. It's over. Everything. And yet people hang on to it. Even Christians hang on to it as if it really matters. And so Jesus is going to remind us that if you get into that mindset, it could drag you into believing deceivingly that this is worth saving and you could forfeit eternity. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I won't forfeit eternity. That's true. But if you go down this road, you prove, as 1 John says, that you never really were saved you love the world. You love it so much that you're willing to pretend all your life here to follow Christ. And yet you're attached in here, completely and utterly having been deceived as though this were worth saving. It's not worth saving. And when the judgment comes, it will be so obvious that that was the reality. That Jesus uses it as a warning to us. Notice, beginning in verse 22, he said to his disciples, The days will come when you'll long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. And they'll say to you, look there and look here, 
Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it has happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and were building But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who's on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. That's a really amazing thing for Jesus to say to his disciples. And he is essentially now addressing the full earthly rule of the king when he comes and his kingdom is about to begin. And no matter what people may say and what mocking occurs... When the rule of Christ begins, not one living soul will miss that day, Jesus says. Not one living soul. But note this, it will, it will be so fast and so sudden and so permanent that there will not be this silly notion of some second moment, some second chance. There won't be. Let's take a look at this and and begin to just walk through it and notice the the sort of way that Jesus describes his second coming. First of all, he notes here in verse 22 that it is after seasons of longing. It is after seasons of longing. Verse 22, there shall come days when you shall long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you shall not see it. There's no specified time frame here. So the disciples, when they're hearing this, well, in their mind, it could be merely the next days after Jesus has completed his earthly mission. It was as imminent as uh, able to occur right then and there. Or in their minds, it could be after a few short years of gospel witness. We don't know how long-term their thinking was or how short-term. Jesus simply tells them there will be some days or seasons where you will long to see even one day of righteousness fill the earth. Jesus tells them then that they will be longing for the reign of Christ and they'll long for even just a day of it. Why is that? Because if you've been in Christ any length of time, even a mere day, you don't want any more tribulation and you know when Christ comes there will be no more. 
You know that the scriptures promise that when Christ comes, there will be no more reign of wickedness on the earth. That means you wake up every day and there's no more undercurrent of fear and uncertainty and insecurity. We have enjoyed unprecedented decades, even three centuries just about, of peace, relative peace in a country that is like no other, and yet it is disappearing rapidly. And there's that sense of fear and insecurity and uncertainty that is on the rise, even in the minds and hearts of believers. You know that when Christ comes, that's gone. There's no more of that. He's the absolute ruler. And you know that when he comes, there's no more dealing with sin's curse upon your daily life. I mean, that is part of the longing, isn't it? I just long to wake up one day and, and go through an entire day and interact with everyone sinlessly. And interact with people and not be sinned against. And not have conflict. There will be no more marital counseling. There will be no more seasons where we have to deal with broken lives even even the earth's curse will be reversed and there's no more hurricanes and natural disasters etc etc any of that no more bad news to report only righteousness dwelling on the earth and there's no more waiting to see Jesus high and exalted as the Messiah ought to be He says here to the disciples, you're going to long for even one day of that, but you're not going to see it. And they're going to say to you, look there and look here. And people are going to run around with religious notions and and constructs of, of, of spirituality that people get involved in, organizations and belief systems. And people are going to deceive you saying, oh, here it is. We're the channel through which it comes. We're where real righteousness dwells. And he says, don't go away and do not run after them. Don't pursue it because those that pursue it manifest that they love things here. They love what human beings tell them instead of what God tells them. They love human promises rather than God's promises. They love the tangible with skin on it rather than the promises of a holy God who cannot lie. You say, does that exist in true believers? Well, you, you ask yourself that question. Do you fully trust the promises of God or do you sometimes comfort yourself in some earthly manipulation to make yourself feel comfortable because you don't really want merely the promises of Scripture? How many times have you come across the promises of Scripture and you have flipped the pages looking for something more comforting than what God already said? How many times have you been dissatisfied with what his word does say? Because you think it should have said more. Because it would have made you feel better. How many times have you thought that your Christian relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is all about your personal feelings of comfort instead of about his promises? And if he doesn't give you whatever it is you want to feel in the moment, In whatever way you have desired to feel it, he is not worthy of your worship. Many times you've been tempted like that. Jesus says, don't go away after some earthly explanation, after some earthly manipulation, some belief system that promises you this or that. Do not run after them. 
And the implication is that in those times when you most long for that day, when the heart of a believer is weary, we become vulnerable to that. Yes, we do. We become vulnerable to false influences that come along and say, I've discovered when it's going to happen. How many of those books have been written? I've found the portal through which we'll see the return of Jesus. Cults say that all the time. They have their pseudo-messiahs raised up, and, and they end up in destruction. We've seen that through the years. Somebody comes along and says, I've calculated by the stars and found the date on the calendar. Really? Another one who says what can't be known? I'm seeing certain circumstances in the world, and I've studied prophecy, and I know when and how Christ's coming will happen. Listen, if you want to go to a prophecy conference, it's wonderful to study what the scriptures say. But if people at such a conference believe that by observing the circumstances, they have interpreted how and when Christ will come, get out of there. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not go after them. Because to do so means you would have to leave your current steady life of faith when God says, I want you to live a steady life of faith. You would have to leave your waiting for the Lord. And he doesn't want you to leave that. He wants you to wait longingly for him and pray for it and keep waiting. He doesn't want you to leave the process of sanctification on a daily basis. He wants you to get after it on a daily basis. He doesn't want you to stop walking in the Spirit. He wants you to walk in the Spirit. He doesn't want you to leave your daily life of knowing Him in His Word and living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't suddenly walk away from God's bare promises and start following after some human calculation of global events. Don't do it. Some philosophical, esoteric explanation of things, some religious notion some scientific data gathering. These things are dangerous. We love to go after those things. Oh, the new scientific. One time I remember watching a DVD where uh, allegedly the star of Bethlehem was calculated in the movement of all the stars through the centuries, and we've calculated it by scientific data. <laughs> the text just says God put a star there. You haven't figured anything out. And whatever you have figured out, I, my hat's off to you. It's fascinating data. But I'm not going to go take that DVD and spread it all over the world as if we found the explanation of the star of Bethlehem. I already have the explanation. God's word. And I didn't have to go to school to study any of that. Just read it. We are vulnerable to this stuff. And Jesus says right here, don't pursue any such thing. And even if they can be so convincing about alleged early signs, don't follow. Notice what Jesus does say, verse 24 and 25. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I love this. This is so clear. I love the clarity of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. In other words, it's not going to come in a way that fallen sinners imagine it will come. And furthermore, the death of Christ and the resurrection of the Messiah 
And then after that, his ongoing work of redeeming sinners from every people and tongue and tribe and nation, all that has to take place first, he says. We are in that season. And the disciples needed to know that their king will first be rejected by Israel and then suffer unto death. And then he's going to come out of the grave and be exalted to heaven and he would empower his witnesses to the world. That is the era we're in right now. That's not going to change until Jesus comes. So there is no need to imagine some human agency or calculation of when Christ comes. And Jesus tells them, in fact, that when it comes, a limited but helpful analogy is what happens when lightning flashes across the sky in a storm. It's a limited analogy. It has limits to it, but it is a helpful, small picture of what it might be like. So after seasons of longing, if you're just sort of keeping track of the text here and its structure, Jesus' coming will be after seasons of longing, and then when it comes, point two, it'll be instantaneous and global. Instantaneous and global. Notice what he says here in the text. He had said that it will be like lightning flashing out of one part of the sky and shining to the other part. So, the analogy of lightning. Lightning is blazing. That's the picture you get. It's blazing. It is sweeping. In this sense, it flashes from one side to the next. So, it moves both in its electrical elements and its power, but it also is what we see. We see it reflected and flashing and shining. It is also instantaneous. You see it flash here, it flashes there. It's swift, it's quick, it's powerful. If you blink, you might miss it. In some, in some sense, in the analogy, it's that fast. It happens that fast. It's upon you. It's also true, the implication here is that when all of us are looking up into the sky to say, look, there's a lightning storm and lightning flashes, we all see it. So the implication of the analogy here is that it will be visible to all. It is powerful. Lightning is powerful. And by a small sort of mundane analogy, it, we are made to know that the coming of Christ will be supra-powerful. Lightning is above the earth. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It'll be above the earth. It'll be sweeping and comprehensive. The implication also is that it's captivating. Man, when light like that flashes and the elements are at work and it's above humanity and you can't figure it out and it's powerful and it's unpredictable, that is essentially the idea of captivation. We're captivated by it. We stare at it. That is the implication here. When Christ comes, it will be captivating and sweeping and blazing and instantaneous and visible to all and it will sweep across the entire heaven and earth because he's the creator of the entire heaven and earth. All of his universe over which he reigns and rules as king will know and see the visible return of Christ. You say, well, what about the refraction of the earth? It's curved. How can you see it on one side and, not the other, and also on the other? He made it to be so, and it will. Just jot down for your further study, Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Look, when he comes in his second coming, even those who were on the earth 
who killed him will see him. So those who are awaiting judgment will know. And every eye will see and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. This is sweeping across the entirety of heaven and earth. And it is instantaneously visible. I might add that it is undeniably omnipotent. We will know instantly, the world will know instantly that it, this is more powerful than anything they can ever come against. And if they're going to come against it, it will be in the rage and rebellion that we have seen in the unfolding of the specifics in the book of Revelation. And it will be foolish and deceived and utterly blind and rebellious and blasphemous unto their judgment. It doesn't matter how much they rail, it is undeniably omnipotent this wonderful coming of Christ. Look at Matthew 24 for a moment, which, by the way, Jesus spoke likely on the Tuesday before his death. Matthew 24. He had just been giving the same warning about tribulation to come and people saying oh the Messiah is over in the wilderness it says back in verse 26 or he's in the inner rooms don't believe them verse 27 just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west so will the coming of the son of man be look at verse 29 but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 32, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, recognize he's near right at the door. It's that swift. The same generation that sees the beginning of it will see the final setting up of the kingdom and the entrance of it and the judgment and death of all those who reject him. That's what verse 34 means. And then verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then he mentions here what he, what he mentioned to the disciples on his way down to Jerusalem in Luke 17, the very passage we're speaking about. So the Tuesday before his death, he mentions here, verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. The same analogy. And he goes on. So here you have the undeniable power of it spoken at two different times as Jesus describes the instantaneous and global awareness and visibility of his kingdom. Now back to Luke 17, these analogies that Jesus brings up are analogies about culture. What is the culture saying? What are they going to be doing? And so Jesus' coming happens after seasons of longing by his people. 
When it happens, it'll be instantaneous and global, and if you're keeping an outline, third, it will be heart-stopping and inescapable. It'll surprise everyone, it will come not as they imagined, and it will stop their hearts, and it will be inescapable in that moment. Notice verse 26 of Luke 17, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. And notice verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. And of course, he's talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice, first of all, in Noah's day that life goes on. Life goes on. All these verb forms are are in a verb form in the original language that would indicate that this is the customary way that they were living. This is just the customary way of life that they were all about every day. And notice he mentions they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage. Jesus mentions these things because he's trying to indicate that although these things aren't sinful in and of themselves, if this is all people care about, and they don't pay any attention to their eternity, they will lose in the end. And in fact, he says that's exactly what's going to happen when he comes. Societies, cultures, global culture is going to be about the customary daily things that make them happy and them fulfilled and they ignore the God who gives them. That is the issue. Eating and drinking. This is, this is meals. Meals are a necessity and meals are of relationship dynamics. The meals sustain life. Meals involve home and family life. Meals involve social life. And and they are a wonderful sort of variety of life in common grace. They are of necessity. They are of relationship. We love them. We love the fact that God gave us such wonderful ways to live in and around the daily custom of eating and providing and being sustained by these things and socializing around them. That's right. That is part of humanity and you can go in and out of every day and in and out of every meal and never once acknowledge that these things are from God and our culture does it all the time and Jesus says as it was in the day of Noah days of Noah these things aren't sinful in and of themselves they're natural to our existence we experience them every day but just as in the days of Noah this is how it will be when Jesus comes no one will be thinking about God or Christ Uh, who doesn't already know him as their savior. They won't be thinking about him. No wonder they mock. Yeah, come on, everything just goes on. You guys are just, you're, you're bent by a crutch. You are insecure, religious people. You don't know what you're talking about. We're giving in marriage, we're marrying, we're all about humanity and heritage. We're fulfilling life, building life, securing life, and passing life on. And that's why Jesus mentions marriage here. It isn't all that humans do, but these things represent the the things that make us secure and give life its depth and beauty and wonder in our relationships. Marriage is of humanity. Marriage is of heritage. It's what it means to fulfill life and build life and secure life and then pass life on to the next generation. These are all great things. In fact, these are the best of things in life. Our sustenance and its variety and the way it pulls together relationships and our heritage and our securing of a future, these are the best things in life. 
But as one commentator said, to make life nothing more and to forget the soul and to forget God and to forget the word and salvation and worship and service to God and eternity, this is not only wrong and sin, but it is the most fatal sin of all. And so the point Jesus makes here is not to depict the worst of wicked cultures, but all cultures. All cultures in their disregard for their creator and their entrenched love for what is only here and now. So when you think about it, godlessness is not a term reserved only for the vilest kind of sinful conduct, but it applies to every person who goes about their life taking meals, passing on heritage, enjoying sustenance and provision and loving the social dynamics of family life and the next generation and achieving things without a single regard for the honor and the glory of the one who gives all these things. And Jesus says, as in Noah's day, the world will always mock God's people verbally and non-verbally, living for what they can get here and now, and they'll do it, notice verse 27, until the day Noah entered the ark. People will, in Jesus' coming, they'll live that way right up until the day Christ appears. That very day, unexpected, that moment, they don't have any regard for Christ or God. And there's no backing off, no time frame for the stirrings of the heart for the committed unbeliever. There's no time or moment when a question in their minds is taken seriously. Any time they're ever convicted by some truth because the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, they suppress it and disregard it in favor of their daily existence of this life because they find in that their ultimate fulfillment. That is a description that Jesus is giving here when he comes. Notice in Lot's day, verse 28, they're eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, and they're building. And there's some added activities here that picture the same thing. Life going on without thought about God or any of it. We buy and sell. We do business. We grow crops. The soil is given by God. We innovate with minds given by God. We are given the power to make wealth. We make that wealth, and we think it's ours, and we build cities and empires Jesus says the world's going to be enjoying the fruits of all of it while giving zero consideration to the one who freely gives these as gracious enjoyments. And by the way, that's been every culture, every famous city, every empire, every noted human achievement throughout history. Life goes on. And the second coming of Christ is going to come unexpectedly. Notice verse 27. And the flood came and destroyed them all. The flood came. Literally, in the original language, the cataclysm inundated them. That's the language. It is the Greek word from which our English word cataclysm comes from. It fell upon them and destroyed them all. I mean, it's so brief and ultimate and final and inescapable. Here it is. Doom hit them. Doom hit them suddenly, shockingly. In Matthew 24, verse 39, it says, They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. It's 
the same in Sodom. Verse 27, and destroyed all. The fire and brimstone burned and rained down upon them and destroyed them all. Suddenly, in a few hours of one day in history, Deuteronomy 29 says, nothing is sown there anymore, nothing is born there anymore, or harvested, no grass grows therein. Isaiah 13, 20 says, it's never to be inhabited or dwelt in from generation to generation where neither Arab should pitch tent nor shepherd make fold. This is what happened. It descended upon them while they were thinking they were together. J.C. Ryle talks about the suddenness of this. And I just couldn't resist reading it because of the vividness of, of really what this warning ought to do in our hearts. Whenever Christ does come again, it'll be a very sudden event, he said. It'll come on men suddenly. It'll break on the world all at once. It will not have been talked over, prepared for, and looked forward to by everybody. It will awaken men's minds like the cry of fire at midnight. It will startle men's hearts like a trumpet blown at their bedside in their first sleep. Like Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, they will know nothing till the very waters are upon them. Like Dathan and Byram and their company when the earth opened up under them, the moment of their hearing the report of the visitation by Christ will be the same moment when they will see it with their eyes. And before they can recover their breath and know where they are, they shall find that the Lord is come. Ryle says, I suspect there's a vague notion floating in men's minds that the present order of things will not end quite so suddenly. I suspect men cling to the idea that there'll be a kind of Saturday night in the world, a time when all will know that the day of the Lord is near, a time when all will be able to cleanse their consciences and look at their wedding garments and shake off their earthly business and prepare to meet God. If any reader of this address has got such a notion into his head, I charge him to give it up forever. Most men are entirely absorbed in the things of time and utterly engrossed with the business of their callings, banks and counting houses and shops and politics and law and medicine, commerce, railways, banquets, balls, theaters. Each and all are drinking up the hearts and souls of thousands and thrusting out the things of God. Think, he says, what a fearful shock the sudden stoppage of all these things would be, the sudden stoppage which will be in the day of Christ's appearing. He said, if, one, if only one great house of business stops payment now, it makes a great sensation. What then shall be the crash when the whole machine of worldly affairs stands still at once? From money counting to earthly scheming, from racing after riches and wrangling about trifles to be hurried away to meet the king of kings, how tremendous the change. From dancing and dressing, from opera going and novel reading to be summoned away by the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, how awful the transition. Yet remember, all of this shall one day be. That's right. This is... What happens? That's why in Luke 17, he says, on that day, verse 31, whoever's on the housetop and whose goods are in the house, you don't go down to take them out. Likewise, the one who's in the field, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
Notice verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't embraced Christ, it's over at that point. And that's why he says, verse 34, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. What is he saying? Judgment. It'll be that swift, that polarizing, and those that are in Christ who are on the earth when he comes will go into his kingdom. And those that are outside of Christ are swiftly and immediately taken away to judgment. There's no, there's no preparation. There's no moment, second chance. You loved this life. You loved this world. You wanted it. You got it. There's your reward. Now it's over. Notice verse 37. They said, where, Lord? Like, where is one going to be taken and the other uh, left behind? Where is that going to happen? You know what he says, basically? Look for massive and sudden death. Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. It's a proverbial statement that says, look for massive death to be happening at that point. You want to know where it's all going to take place? It's going to be taking place on the earth where people who have loved this life are judged. So there it is. J.C. Ryle says, picture your own house, your own family, your own fireside. What will be found there? Picture above all your own feelings, your own state of mind. And then remember, this is the end towards which the world is hastening. And there will be no long notice to quit. This is the way in which the world affairs will be wound up in the end. So important, beloved, to ask that question. Are you trying to preserve your life here? Do you love your life here more than your eternal soul? Sometimes people think, I don't want the Lord to come yet because there are so many things I haven't enjoyed. Really? Really? I know that. There are common grace wonderful experiences to enjoy, but nothing like glory and when Christ comes, that'll be it. Some people at the time wishing for marriage won't be able to be married and they'll be immediately in the presence of Christ either as judge or savior. What then? What kind of Jesus are you seeking? Because our savior wants your whole heart and you cannot love this life and him. You love him and everything in this life is on our way to meet him bow with me Lord you have certainly cautioned us as we read in 2nd Peter how shall we conduct ourselves in holiness and godliness telling people the truth and living the truth in front of them and using our lives in this life to to seek your glory and to do missions and send the gospel. And thank you for allowing us to enjoy all these things that we've been given and that we know where they come from and that we, we honor you with them. But so often it's easy to attach to them and grab them. And when we already know from your word that they, they will burn up, may we just lose our grip on these things that you've given to us, never bowing down to them, but always knowing that they serve eternity. And we must see them that way or we get lost and deceived and 
Your coming is so certain and will be so sudden and shocking that no heart will stand. And we know we're protected by you. We must live in light of the urgency of this and that it can come at any moment and it won't be when the world expects it. The world will be like it is today. They just love what they love. And it will all be over in one moment as they're called to account. Lord, thank you for our rescue in Christ. We don't work our way for this. We just believe in you and trust you and you shelter us from the coming storm. If there's some way that we can detach our hearts further from the things that we enjoy here and see them rightly and use them for eternal purposes, then we want to do that. Please forgive us for ever adulterating any of that. And may we live with this undercurrent of sobriety and urgency, even as we build and, and marry and are given in marriage and take meals together and fellowship and live life and achieve things. May we never make those things the ultimate of anything, but all of it to serve your honor as our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.